Moving on to the next section, which is part two, the business case. There are three elements to review here. 6.1, which is explain the importance of the business case throughout the project lifecycle. 6.2, explain what is meant by benefits management, including identification, definition, planning, tracking, and realization. And 6.3, explain investment appraisal techniques used by project management, including internal rate of return, or IRR, and net present value. Just one thing to um, make an announcement of here on IRR and net present value in case you're getting scared. You don't need to know the formulas for these. Um, you do need to know how they work and what they're used for. So we'll go into that in some detail. But the actual formulas themselves are not part of the curriculum. So let's look at the business case. So the business case answers the why. Why are we doing the project? So the business case normally has a long life cycle because it is answering the question why, which is done at the very, very beginning in the concept phase. And it runs all the way through the project. Through definition, it gets updated. So a high-level business case turns into a detailed business case once more information about cost and schedule are known. And then as you work your way through the deployment phase, each go-no-go -go decision, the business case is used as a blueprint to answer the question, can this project still deliver the benefits that are required? So the business case is what you always go back to for each gate review, for go, no go, to make sure that the benefits are still able to be realized. If they're not, it gives the opportunity for the senior management team to perhaps stop that project and use the resources, the time, and the money for another opportunity. The business case outlives the normal project life cycle as well. After handover to operations, so after it's been handed over to BAU and the products are being used in BAU, at that point in time, we go into the benefit realization stage where the sponsor, who is accountable for the business case, who owns the business case, manages the actualization or the realization of those benefits coming true. So let's look at some of the items that you'll find in a business case. What are some of the sections to it that are included? The first one that you'll see, usually at the very, very top, often in the form of, say, an executive summary, will be the business case. And this is the background of the project or program. Why is it needed? You'll often see it called a problem statement. It will explain a problem that the organization might be facing, such as, we are in danger of no longer being compliant with regulatory legislation, such as GDPR, and we need a project to address this. I could also spell out an opportunity. There is an opportunity to improve our products so that we can increase revenues and increase our market share and enhance our reputation. It's background information answering why. Why are we doing the project? The next section you'll often see are the options on how do we fulfill that? How do we realize the benefits? And it will talk about the different approaches that a project can take. So if the strategic case is that a study has been done and the organization is inefficient, there is a lot of bureaucracy, there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of manual procedures, one approach will be is automizing it. So making things automatic i.e. through a software solution that might be de developed, tested, 
and released. That might be the option that will be highlighted. An option that is often put in the business case and I think is always good practice is to put in the do nothing approach. So what would happen if we weren't going to do the project at all? What would be the end result of that? What would be the damages that we would accrue if we don't address any regulatory non-compliance issues that we have? What would happen if we don't update our products and we let our competition pass us by? So what is the do nothing approach? The project team and the sponsor will highlight the preferred approach and that's what they'll put forward to the board for approval. The benefits are listed. What good is going to come out of the project and what's going to happen? And eventually, uh, initially, those benefits are very high level. We need to be more productive. We need to become compliant with regulatory procedures. As the project moves its way through the life cycle and more information is known, then those will become more quantitative. You will see things like we need to become 25% more efficient over the next six years the benefits that we are going to get will be outlined in definable metrics that you can measure without it being subjective. Commercial aspects will go into the business case as well. These are things like return on investment. So if we invest 100,000 pounds into a project, we will make 500,000 pounds, hypothetically, over the next five years. Those kind of numbers will go into a business case. That kind of analysis will be available. And that's where internal rate of return and net present value can, could come in if you're using those techniques, which we'll look at subsequently. Risks will go in there as well. The risks are going to be very much centered around commercials. Uh, risks about downturns in market, price of the pound falling. What would that do to benefit realization? How would that potentially devalue this business case? those kind of risks will be available to be reviewed. So they're highlighted and can be discussed during the approval process. Uh, Timescales for the project and also timescales for benefit realization as well. So no one will sign off to a business case if they have no idea when these things are gonna happen, if it's completely open-ended. It is understood that the timescales, especially in the initial business case that's created during concept, are gonna be extremely high level and thus very inaccurate but it will give somebody an understanding of how long this should take, how long it should take to realize the benefits. So let's move into benefit management at this point in time. So with benefit management, and like with a lot of the processes that are within APM, it starts with identification. So we have identifying the benefits, planning, tracking the benefits, and then finally realizing the benefits. So it's a step-by-step -step process all the way through the extended project life cycle. So let's look at these one at a time. So identification, the first step, is gathering a list of benefits. What good could come from doing this project? How will our organization benefit once this project is completed? After that, we'll define them, and this is where the quantitative measurements come in. So we will take something that is a bit subjective, like we will make our, our organization more productive and put some actual brass tacks to that, some actual numbers that can be measured at the end of the project. We will be 25% more efficient in the next six to eight months once this project has completed. Planning is who's responsible for what, for benefit realization. Who is at, takes which role. And again, the central role with this is going to be with the sponsor. 
It's about how we're gonna track those benefits, how we're gonna measure the benefits. When are we going to do these things? So it's all these planning steps about the what and the who and the when. And by planning, it allows everyone to have a common expectations about the benefit realization process and who's going to be involved in which, which parts of it. Moving through is tracking. So once the project has released its products, what it's created, into business as usual, and those products have been used by business as usual for a certain amount of time, you start tracking to see how well those products are actually bringing the benefits to the organization. So in our example, we talked about an automated computer solution to make the organization more efficient. So you might monitor things like, what's the uptake of it? How many people are actually using it? Or how many people are still doing it the old way? And if you find a lot of people still using manual processes and the system isn't being used, then maybe communication wasn't quite right. Maybe there has to be some enforcement to get people onto the new system. If you make a new product that is being sold to the general public and you find that you're not selling it as much as what was expected, and therefore benefits aren't being realized at the rate that you were expecting in the business case, it might be time to call the sales team and try to figure out why aren't these products being sold? What is wrong? What are the barriers to selling these products? So it's tracking them and then taking corrective actions. It gives data so that you can take those corrective actions in order to maximize the benefits. Realization is just that, it's making the benefits come true. So you take the data that came from tracking, do any corrective actions that you have if there's any shortfalls, and continue to develop lessons learned all the way through this process as well, which is important because it will help with the next project. So one of the lessons was our calculations for return on investment were way off. You can make those adjustments for the next time that you make a business case. If you have things in there that says it was much too optimistic to think that we were going to be able to make 500 million quid over two years, those kind of return on investment equations could be adjusted for subsequent projects as well. We're gonna look next at investment appraisal. So this is when you look at the return on investment. So an organization can't do all of its projects. It would love to probably, but there's only enough time, enough resources, and importantly, enough money for a finite number of them. So one thing that a portfolio manager will do, and to an extent a program manager will do as well, is they will try to select the right projects. So the projects that have the maximum value. And two of the investment appraisal techniques that are available for a project team, for a sponsor, for a steering board, are internal rate of return, as well as net present values, or IRR and NPV. So we'll look at NPV first. NPV is a way of comparing projects and which ones provide the most value. So if you can only do one of two projects, NPV is a criteria that you can use in order to select one project over another. And what you do with NPV is you come up with a number that you want to measure against. So for example, you might say that a project at the bare minimum has to get a 5% rate of return on the money that we invest. So if we invest 100 grand, we want to at least get 5% back. 
that could be a number that is chosen for you can invest the money instead of doing projects whatsoever. So that number is come up with by the organization. It's all dependent. That number might be 5%, that could be 10%, could be 20%. It all depends. But the organization will have a number. And with net present value, what happens is there's an equation that you don't have to know, but understand what it does, where you put in the amount that you have to invest in the project and the amount of money that you're going to make in return, in other words, the monetary benefits of the project over time. So if you are going to measure a project and the benefits are going to be measured for five years, you plug the cost of the project as well as the revenue that will come back, the profits from the project, into the equation. And one thing you'll often heard said about both net present value, as far as, as well as IRR, is that it, the equation allows for the depreciation of money over time because 100,000 pounds today is worth more than 100,000 pounds in five years, and that's because of inflation. So that equation builds it in. Net present value automatically diminishes the value of the pound as it moves its way through. And the key with net present value is that if the net present value equation comes out and you plug the numbers in and the project comes out with a net present value of zero, what that means is that it exactly met that threshold. So if you remember, we said we were looking to measure against a 5% return. So if you do your numbers and the net present value comes out to be zero over five years, so you put in how much money you have to spend to start the project, what's the project budget, compare that against the rate of return, and all the numbers come out and the equation is completed and you hit enter on your calculator and the number comes to zero, that means the project isn't losing or gaining. It's exactly at the threshold. So you would still consider the project. You're not going to lose by doing it. You lose when it's a minus number. But it isn't overly attractive. So if you have another project that might have a plus number, like plus 250,000 pounds, you would go with that project instead. The rule of thumb is if you're comparing comparable projects against each other, you go with the one with the highest net present value. So in our example, we've got one with a net present value of zero, completely breaks even, versus one, 200,000 pounds, you go with the one that's 200,000 pounds. It's the bigger number. So it enables portfolio managers to look across candidate projects and financially consider which ones are the ones that we should do and which ones are the ones we should put on hold. Internal rate of return, more or less everything I said was exactly the same, and I'll go through all the similarities. It's the same concept. It's the same kind of tool. So you would normally only use one of these. You wouldn't use net present value and internal rate of return. You would use one or the other because it is meant for the exact same purpose, and that purpose is to compare candidate projects. And it does the exact same thing where in the calculation, in the formula, it discounts money over time. So money five years from now is worth less than money today. It's all built into the equation. The difference is instead of a pound amount, like we said before, net present value, we have two projects, one was zero and the other was 200,000. The internal rate of return is the exact same information except it is represented as a percentage, not as a monetary amount. So we had set our threshold, what we wanted to say is a project has to be better than 5%. So if your net present value comes out to, I'm sorry, if your internal rate of return comes out to be higher than 
6%, 7%, that means you're over your threshold and that project would be considered to be approved and started. Everything else is the same. It's just the way the number is uh, presented. Net present value, it's as a monetary amount and an internal rate of return, it's represented as a percentage. So if we look at some of the actual equations, there's some examples of this in your book. Um, we have a project where you invest 100,000 and the equation's already been done for you and it shows that the net present value comes out to be 22,896. So what that says is that it's over zero, it would be a candidate project. It would be considered for uh, release. It would be considered for initiation to start. The exact same formula was done on IRR in this case, but instead of 220, 1,896, it came out to be 18.4%. So it's the exact same thing that we reviewed previously. Same concept, same usage. It's just that the number that is produced in net present value is a monetary number and an in internal rate of return is represented as a percentage.